word now, our scripture reading this afternoon is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll read verses 14 through 22, but we'll focus uh, primarily on verse 16 in relation to the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse uh, 14, on page 1138 in your pew Bibles. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then we'll read that in connection with Lord's Day 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism as we continue sequentially through the Lord's Days rather than taking a summer break. You recall um, Lord's Day 25. A few weeks ago it speaks of words and sacrament as the means of grace through which God's Spirit works and confirms faith in us. And then the last two uh, Lord's Days focused on baptism. Now the next three on the Lord's Supper which we see on pages 884 and 885. We'll read questions 75 through 77 together responsively. It says, How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, As surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Question 76, what does it mean? to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood. It means to accept with a believing heart 
the entire suffering and death of Christ, and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul. Finally, question 77. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Beloved, as we embark on a a three-week look at the Lord's Supper, one of the most obvious things about our confessional teaching on the Supper is that it spans three of our 52 Lord's Days and eight of our 129 questions. If you do the math, that's about 6% of the Catechism's teaching about the whole of the Christian faith and life. That is to say, it's seen as no small part of what we believe and practice. One theologian in an essay on the Heidelberg Catechism's teaching on the Supper uh, compares this to the present-day lack of emphasis on the Lord's Supper and says it is almost certain that the framers of the Heidelberg Catechism would be dismayed by how little attention is given to the nature and benefits of the sacraments in the church today. There is a big difference between the importance that our confessions place upon this sacrament and the importance that the church of the 21st century places on it. And so as we think about the supper this afternoon, we want to try to correct that by showing that the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper, which is simply the biblical doctrine of the Lord's Supper, should cause us, like the church in the book of Acts, to devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, to have a high view of the supper. Because it is, in fact, a communion with the risen and ascended Lord Jesus by his Spirit, where he communicates his grace to us and effects enhanced communion or participation 
between us so that the communion with Christ that we enjoy through all of life is enjoyed in an intensified way at his table. That's the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper. We get it from passages like the one we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What you see is one of the the two passages that are mentioned in question 77, where basically the the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that's stated in questions 75 and 76 is then supported by these two passages cited in question 77. The latter of which we take as our focus this afternoon, we believe and confess that Christ nourishes and refreshes our souls as we come to his table in faith. We get that from the passage we just read. We'll now unpack it, the time that we have together this afternoon. Three very simple things. One, I want to consider what does it mean to participate in the blood and body of Christ. Two, what is the effect of this on the individual believer? And then third, what are the implications of this for the church's practice of the Lord's Supper. First, what does it mean to participate in the blood and body of Christ? If you um, have the the New King James still with you, you see that that word in verse 16 is communion. The ESV has it uh, participation. Other translations like the CSB or NASB um, say sharing or still others, fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. It has this idea of, of communal participation and fellowship together, sharing in something. What verse 16 says it is that we share in is Christ, that we are participating or communing in him. And so the, the question is, how are we to understand that? What does Paul mean that the supper is a communion in and with the Lord Jesus? It means to say that it's more than a mere remembrance. If you've studied all the the various views on the Lord's Supper, uh, young people, perhaps you've you've studied this a bit in in school. You have the uh, the Roman Catholic view that that was taught and still is taught today that um, the body of of Christ is physically present in the elements. Remember during the time of the Reformation, Luther uh, comes along and he teaches this kind of of confusing doctrine of Christ being in, with, and and under the elements as his ascended body, Luther thought, was somehow able to be uh, present in in Wittenberg and and St. Catharines and everywhere else all at the same time. And since both of these views obviously have their problems, um, Ulrich Zwingli came along and and taught something like this. He, He said that Christ is not present in the supper, But those words at the institution of the Lord's Supper, this is my body, were purely symbolic. And so he said to eat his flesh and drink his blood means nothing more than putting one's faith in Christ. And so the supper is not a means of grace, but a memorial where we uh, simply recall mentally what Christ has done. It's nothing but a commemoration of his death. This view, what we can call the the symbolic memorial view, has become, I'd say, the the default position in evangelical churches of our day, so that this idea of Christ being in no way present, but but, um, us merely remembering him, has become what most people believe is happening in the supper. 
that we're just thinking really hard about the gospel and remembering Jesus' death like a a moment of silence or like something that you might do on on Remembrance Day, Uh, but Christ is certainly not present. I'll read you one um, theologian just as a representative of, of this view. He says, The ordinance of the Lord's Supper is a divinely appointed testimony from the believer's heart to God respecting his trust in Christ's efficacious death. Notice the emphasis being on what the believer is doing in remembering and not what God is doing in nourishing and refreshing his people. It's a bit like what what is sometimes done in baptism, which is God speaking to us, but it's turned by some into us making a declaration to him and to everyone else. See how that's to get it backwards. A baptism is first and foremost about what God is saying. Likewise, the Lord's Supper is first and foremost about what God is doing. He is nourishing and refreshing our souls for eternal life. He is communing with us by his spirit. The Lord's Supper is not about the absence of Christ and our mere remembrance of him, but it's about the presence of Christ by his spirit to nourish and refresh us by his blood, by his body. That's what Calvin uh, comes along and clarifies as this debate is going on at the time of the Reformation, which is then codified in the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism, the second and the first Helvetic Confession, the Gaelic Confession, the Old Scots Confession, and Westminster. It is the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And we see it taught here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul would not recognize a mere memorialist view as consistent with what he here teaches. But verse 16 of our passage very clearly rejects any understanding of the Lord's Supper that would define it as merely a memorial and nothing more. I say that for two reasons. When Paul says the cup of blessing which we bless is a participation or communion in the blood of Christ and the bread we break is a participation or communion in his body, That has to mean more than a mere remembrance, first of all, because of of the way that this word is elsewhere used by Paul. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this same Greek word, koinonia, is there translated in chapter 1, verse 9, as fellowship. As Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. This word implies a a sharing or participating in Christ. A few commentators translate it, communal participation. Paul is is saying we are, are shareholders, each of us united to Christ, sharing in the benefits that he has won for us. The language here of of fellowship or, or communal participation is primarily vertical. It's what we get from Christ. We share in him. We participate in his benefits. Paul uses this same word at the end of 2 Corinthians in that closing benediction we often use where he speaks of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, this vertical communion with the Lord. And so when he then uses this same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, based on the way that he's elsewhere used it with the emphasis on this vertical communion, it makes sense that we would understand that what what Paul is saying is vertical communion with Christ. 
And I use that word vertical to distinguish from the, the horizontal fellowship that we enjoy amongst each other as believers. Paul is here talking about the communion we enjoy with Christ above. The first reason why 1 Corinthians chapter 10 does not allow a mere memorial view is is because the word it it uses for communion or participation is elsewhere used by Paul to speak of the fellowship that we enjoy with Christ above. And the second reason is because of the context of Paul's argument. And this is in the midst, you might recall, of a, an extended uh, treatment of the question of eating food sacrificed to idols, going back all the way to chapter 8, where Paul tells them that they must not continue to participate in these pagan sacrificial meals. He says at verse 14, where we picked up our reading, flee from idolatry, because, verse 20, those who sacrifice to idols are ultimately participants with demons. He's saying in these pagan sacrificial meals, there is some sort of of actual spiritual participation, communion with the demonic forces behind these false gods. You can look at a psalm like Psalm 106, where it it speaks in the terms of of the uh, idols that Israel sometimes worshipped in the Old Testament, even Molech, where they'd offer their their children as sacrifices to him. It speaks, Psalm 106, of them offering their children to demons, suggesting to us, and Paul is saying the same thing here, that behind these false gods whom they worship is uh, satanic uh, activity. As we saying, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and at the same time the cup of demons, verse 21. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The two are incompatible. And they're incompatible because of the actual spiritual participation that is taking place. Charles Hodge said, it's here assumed that partaking of the Lord's Supper brings us into communion with Christ. If this be so, then partaking of the table of demons brings us into communion with demons. A mere memorial view would not make any sense of the argument that Paul's making, but he's talking here about real spiritual union. Keith Evans of the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary says, just as there is a genuine spiritual participation in the table of demons in idolatrous and pagan worship, the Reformed view is that as a Christian participates in the table of the Lord, they have true spiritual participation with Christ's body and blood. So though he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. He nourishes us with the benefits of his crucified and now exalted, glorified body. This is the reformed view of the Lord's Supper. In it, we commune with Christ by his spirit. When Pastor Richard Barcelos makes the point that since believers already have communion with Christ by faith, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, then the Lord's Supper must be viewed as a means to nurture what is already possessed and enhancer, if you will, of what we already have, where like the word and like prayer is a means through which grace comes to us from Christ. This is what we confess about the Supper. So next I want to consider the effect of this on the believer. 
Question 75 says, It nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life. Or the Belgic Confession, that beautiful statement of, of Article 35, says it nourishes and sustains us. Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. He nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor, desolate souls by the eating of his flesh and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. This is the effect on the believer of the spiritual communion enjoyed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is, we confess, a means of grace. That is to say, a means of sanctifying grace. Now, Presbyterian pastor John Payne says, more than an empty memorial, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper functions as a means of sanctifying grace and is meant to be central in public worship and the cultivation of personal growth and piety. We're saying the effect the Lord's Supper has on those who participate properly in true faith is growth in grace. Spiritual nourishment, comfort, refreshment, strengthening, renewal. These are the words our confessions use to talk about the supper. If you hear this morning, we, we talked from Psalm 19 about how the word revives the soul, enlightens the eyes, rejoices the heart. The same is true of the visible word. It enlightens our eyes, it rejoices our heart, it revives our soul, it is more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. It nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life. And then question 76 speaks of how it unites us more and more to Christ's blessed body. This is what I was getting at when I said we, we, um, that, that if we already enjoy communion with him, then this is to be understood as an intensification of that union, a means to nurture and strengthen what is already possessed. The Lord strengthens us in our experience of communion with Christ. And this is why Calvin spoke of the supper in connection with Ephesians chapter 5 and the union between a husband and wife. We're just as the two, that the husband and the wife are already united and have become one flesh. So there are instances where they enjoy an intensification of that communion as they come together in the covenant-renewing act of the marriage bed. In a similar way, the Lord's Supper is that covenant-renewing act where the union we always enjoy objectively is experienced subjectively at his table. We're united to his body, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. By the way, when question 76 says that, it's referring to Ephesians 5. You can see it footnoted there. In the same way that this, that subjective experience of our objective union has a uniting effect on the husband and the wife, so we're drawn closer and, and closer also to Christ as we come to his table. We're assured of his love for us. We're reminded of, his, of our obligations to him. Even as, as when the husband and wife come together, it is a, a sort of covenant renewal, uh, an enfleshment of their vows, where they're being reminded, uh, I am my beloved's and he is mine. We belong uh, totally and faithfully and exclusively and joyfully to one another. So as we come to the table, we're being reminded, I am my beloved's and he is mine. The Belgian Confession says that we are moved to a more fervent love for him as we're reminded of his promises. 
that as surely as I taste and see the bread and the cup broken and shared with me so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. And as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup given as sure signs of his body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life. And so there is a, a proclamatory element. There is an element of remembrance. But it's also more than that. Christ is actually nourishing us with his very self. He in us and we in him. He's reminding us of his covenant promises to us that I will be your God and you will be my people. And he is stirring our affections toward him in this spiritual act of union and communion. The effect on the individual believer is significant. It is a participation in the blood and body of Christ. So now in the time that we have left, I want to think about the implications of this for the corporate life of the church. If it is the case that real communion with Christ is is taking place in the supper, which, which uh, seems to be what Paul is saying, and uh, the Reformed Confessions say emphatically... And what does that mean for the church? First of all, it means this, question 75, that Christ commands me and all believers to participate. That we are not to consider it a a sort of optional thing that we can just opt out of for petty reasons. But if we really understand the grace that our Lord, Master, and Bridegroom wishes to communicate to us, then we won't neglect it. But we'll come. Young people will desire to to profess faith, will want to come to the table. Not not individually, not privately, but but this uh, vertical communion that Paul speaks of is a communal participation that extends, verse 17, to the whole body. And so we take it together. Question 75, receiving it from the hand of him who serves. That's referring to receiving the elements from Christ's ambassador in the context of public worship. If we could say it this way, one of the things that means is that private uh, virtual communion where I participate remotely isn't something that we should be doing. But this banquet table of grace belongs in the context of corporate, in-person, public worship with the people of God. So we should come. We should come with God's people. And third, we should come as believers. For it is, as the Belgian Confession says, for the nurturing of the spiritual life of those who are already born again. Question 76 says that part of the nature of coming to the table is that we are accepting with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. And so this table is for those who believe and understand that. And then fourth, for those who do, it is a table that we do well to feed on not infrequently. Uh, think about it, if, if what our confessions say and, and what we just demonstrated from 1 Corinthians 10 is true, if it's a, a sanctifying means of grace where we enjoy spiritual communion with Christ who nourishes and refreshes our souls by it, then shouldn't we want to come more than a couple times a year? 
I don't think it was coincidental that Calvin, who chiefly developed this, this reform doctrine of the Supper, advocated for the frequent celebration of it. Because he saw the two going hand in hand. A mere memorial view fits with infrequent celebration, but a spiritual communion, sanctifying means of grace, spiritual presence view, doesn't. Michael Horton says one's view of the nature of the supper plays no small part in determining the question of frequency. If the sacrament is chiefly a matter of our remembering or attesting to our faith and obedience, it's not surprising that it should be infrequent. But if it means more, then more than a few times a year it would seem to follow. If we see it as a covenant renewal, something akin to the act of marriage, then more than a few times a year it would seem to follow. In fact, one theologian makes that exact point, responding to the argument that, that if we do it more, it becomes less special by saying if it were suggested that there were certain intimate relations of marriage that should be had less often to make them more special, that would not be a very convincing argument. The way to make something special is by cherishing it, not by reducing its frequency. Reducing the frequency does not make something more special, it just makes it infrequent. And if it's something that's given by God to move us to a more fervent love for him, to stir our affections and assure us of his love for us, much like the covenant-renewing act of marriage, then infrequency doesn't seem advantageous. But it's something that's given for the health of our relationship, for the strengthening of our weak faith as a means of grace. If we believe it's a means of grace, as we've argued... The question then becomes, how much do we desire to receive Christ's grace? Or if we believe, as we confess in Belgic Confession, Article 33, that God ordains this sacrament mindful of our crudeness and weakness, then the question becomes, how weak are we willing to admit we are? John Owen says there is in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper an especial and peculiar communion with Christ in his body and blood. One reason, Owen says, why we so little value the ordinance and profit so little by it may be because we understand so little of the nature of that spiritual communion with Christ. He's saying the more we understand it, the more we will hunger and thirst for it. It's a means of grace given by the head of the church for our spiritual benefit to nourish and refresh our souls for eternal life, unite us more and more to Christ's blessed body, and assure us, even assure me, the first person, that as surely as I see with my eyes and as surely as I taste with my mouth the bread and the cup given for me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me. On the cross. That, beloved, is the gospel message that God, by the, the means of this sacrament, wants to, to drive deeper and deeper into our hearts through this sacred meal. May He cause us more and more to believe it for Christ's sake. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are mindful of the crudeness and weakness of our faith, and so you give us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to assure us of your grace toward us.
to speak to all five of our senses, to strengthen our faith, Lord, and to nourish us by the body and blood of our Savior, our risen and ascended incarnate Savior, to whom we are united by your Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would make us more and more to cherish this and to believe the gospel truth that is proclaimed this meal. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.